This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? Hello and welcome, everyone. We are here today with Cheryl Robinson. Thank you so much for joining us. A little bit about Cheryl. She's a staff lawyer with the Refugee Law Office, Legal Aid Ontario, and practices exclusively in the area of immigration and refugee law, an area I know nothing about, which is fantastic because I know (laughs) I'm going to learn a lot today. Um, Like how to spell it. Like how to spell it, what they are, lots of good stuff. Uh, Cheryl regularly appears before all levels of the IRB and the federal court, including uh, the infamous Herelica. Um, I know you've been before the Court of Appeal, Ontario Court of Appeal as co-counsel, intervener on some other levels and court cases, which is fantastic. Uh, you're involved, very heavily involved in a lot of litigation cases that kind of have the intersection between family, child protection, and immigration law. So thank you for joining us today. We're really, really happy to have you. Well, I'm not. You might be, but... I'm, I'm ecstatic. <laughs> I'm very upset by this uh, reception. <laughs> Drink more wine. It'll feel better. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit what exactly is, because obviously, as we all know, I don't do any refugee law. So how, tell me about a refugee law and the intersection between family, child services, et cetera. Like, how does it all come together? What does that mean, even? Uh, in terms of the intersection with family law, a lot of this comes up with cases where women have fled from uh, abusive situations and they've brought their kids with them. And so there, is, there are two separate areas of law that get involved, family and child protection, and then on the other side, immigration. And it almost becomes a question of which one takes precedence, which one should be heard first, which one should be decided, and how do they interact? Because they're often using the same kinds of evidence, the same kinds of issues, but they are inherently two different areas of law. One is provincial, one is federal, and it raises a lot of novel questions. And I, it's something that's become a bigger focus for me over the past couple of years. And part of this is because now, as law becomes more international and people are able to, you know, borders are not such a boundary anymore to these kinds of legal cases, I think we're going to see them as a raise. Uh, you know, there's going to be a rise in these times, uh, types of cases. How would one of our practitioners, someone like me, listening to this podcast, be able to say, okay, I've got this refugee claim or what I think is a refugee claim. So I personally hand it out and refer it to other people. Uh, that's you and uh, a couple other people that you've pointed me towards. Um, that That's for the refugee claim. How do I know when it reaches that more complicated level? When I say, wow, there's maybe some family law issues here. 
how, how do I identify that? Or, or when would I, what would be some telltale signs? Would it be a person with children on a refugee claim? And then that's going to be more complicated. So I need a little bit more of a specialist practitioner that needs that referral or? There could be a couple of ways that you would see that. So the first would be, yeah, there are kids and then you've made a refugee claim. It's based on, you know, for example, on domestic violence. And the board says, do you have permission to have taken the kids outside the country? And that could lead into this whole issue of whether you are even eligible to have or to make a claim for refugee protection in terms of whether you, know, you could get refugee protection because you might be excluded because of this issue. And so that just becomes something that's more complicated. The other is just very straightforward. If there's another family law proceeding, it's just, it has the potential to complicate the refugee claim. Yeah, and the reason I ask is because some of our listeners are consultants. So they might not have that family law training or that family law background. I don't have much in that area. So knowing and understanding and being able to identify, oh, okay, there's a family law issue or asking that question, do you have the permission of the other you know, person or parent to take these children out of the country? And if the answer is no, now I should, that's my red flag to say stop and hand it off to a specialist. Yeah, that, that's important because sometimes you don't know what you don't know, right? And you don't want to get blindsided by something like this. You want to know as early as possible if this is a potential issue so you can start getting ready for it ahead of time, you know, not when all of a sudden it explodes <clears throat> in the middle of a retainer. It's true. I think, though, there are other things that will help, you know, flag this as an issue. The board right now, the refugee board, they're really good about sending out letters saying, hey, we think this is an issue in the claim. You know, the minute you get a letter saying, you know, there's potentially issues of exclusion, that claim just becomes a lot more complicated. And for a lot of people, it does take them out of their comfort zone. And they might need to either get advice or partner with a more senior practitioner. It's not a straightforward claim, uh, claim at that point. Um, and we also see, I mean, Chantal, ex, you know, you get um, applications for intervention by the minister, right? Mm -hmm. So the minister will get involved on these cases. And they can be very, very adversarial. And that's something that if you've never done a case like that before, it is a really good idea to either refer to someone else or see if you can partner with a more senior practitioner to go through the steps and to learn from them so that then you can take that knowledge and replicate it on the next time this comes up. Yeah, because we're used to dealing with refugee claims in a non-adversarial setting. So, mm -hmm. I mean, even in a simple intervention, that ratchets up the stress and, you know, the skill level quite a bit. So much less something very complicated like this. Absolutely. And I think even just like that, when you get to an actual refugee hearing, the, I mean, the last one I did lasted for seven sittings. So it can go for a very long time. So just practically, you have to prepare your client for that. And you have to be prepared for that, that you're keeping track of evidence, that you're constantly, you know, producing new evidence as you go through to respond to some of the issues and that you're preparing your client for a cross-examination, not just the usual examination you get at the board. It's a very different procedure, much more like what you would see at the IAD rather mm -hmm. than in a refugee claim. So how do you prepare your clients for that cross-examination? I mean, they've lived this, you know, allegedly lived this traumatic event, and now you're going to ask them questions in front of this stranger 
the panel member. How do you prepare them for that? What kinds of things do you do? You just yell at them until they cry. <laughs> <laughs> Top of fingers. the list. Absolutely. It's what I tell everyone that's just starting. If You're your client welcome. doesn't cry, it's not <laughs> worth it. Yeah. It's great. Um, don't often give that advice so much. But <laughs> one of the things I do tell, um, tell people when we're walking through this is that you have to tell your client that there is going to be someone there who is going to try and poke holes in everything that they say. And that's their job to do that. Exactly. And to not take it as a personal matter, which is a ridiculous statement to make when everything about refugee is personal. But at the same time, to make sure that, to remain calm, to listen and respond to what they're asking for, and just to not buckle under pressure, to be honest. Like, I, I think it can be very upsetting for people to be questioned, on something particularly as sensitive as domestic violence and particularly for someone who's lived through this for a very long time it can be re-traumatizing well and also they might be coming from a background where people have not believed them in the past and just the fact of having another person question question their credibility like that could be triggering in itself absolutely and I, I think one of the things I found with my clients is I tend to develop quite um close relationships in terms of really knowing everything that has happened that they are willing to tell me inside and out and also trying to be there as a support person for them during the hearing that I know some of my clients have said that it's helpful to be able to look over and see that I am there and so I think that's part of it like you really do need to have a good relationship with your client of trust and that to know that to reassure them that if something doesn't come out clearly, if you're not, if they're concerned they're not explaining well, that you are there to ask questions afterwards and to make sure that everything that has happened to them comes out clearly and sympathetically and that you're in their corner. Because I think especially this, like they need to know that someone believes them. And I think that is really important that you can play that role. I like to always remind the client as well that It doesn't make a difference what the minister's counsel thinks. It makes no difference to the result of their claim. The the only person in the room that it matters what they think is the board member. So just, you know, if somebody on the other side of the room doesn't believe you, that it it doesn't affect anything at all. Absolutely. I think also, just from a counsel side, practice your objections. Because the minister's counsel, they will... I mean, this is their ro- their job is to poke holes in people's stories. So they will ask scattershot questions just on every matter, everything, just small details that aren't relevant, that don't really mean anything. And so I try to anticipate that and prepare what I'm going to object to. Like, you cannot be a passive participant in those kinds of hearings. You have to be ready to object and ask why they're asking for these things or why it's open-ended questioning. It's also a really good idea to speak to your claimant before and really see where the line is for them. If there are some very sensitive issues, very sensitive events, for example, you might want to canvas with your claimant before. What is their ability to be able to talk about this incident? Because, I mean, one of the things that often happens at hearings is that the minister's counsel will, and sometimes the board member, will push to hear as much of the intimate details as possible. And the question is, is that really important? Is this a memory test? 
about what happened? Are those tiny details are important? Or is it sort of the pattern, how someone feels about what happened to them? What impact it has had on them, on their children? You know, I think that's something that you have to consider in advance. Like what, what are the limits for what your claimant is able to speak about? Because you don't, you don't want them to be so re-traumatized that they cannot testify, that they cannot provide evidence, and it doesn't serve any purpose. So it's, yeah, just to make sure that they feel like they can explain what's happened to them in the hearing in a proper way. As a practitioner who does not practice in this particular area, it, it's, I just can't. I, I'm too emotional. It, it's a very heavy subject matter. How do you manage that? How do you deal with that stress? How do you do your best not to take it home? What do you, how do you define those boundaries? What do you, because that's a lot. Every day you're hearing about people's trauma and, you know, going through those details and trying to think of the evidence and the case law and do the best you can to fight for them. So how do you how do you deal with that? I, I'm seeing that look on your face that's like, I don't. I don't deal with it. I'm a mess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was about to say, what is this boundary you talk about? <laughs> no, I, I think it's impossible to leave all those things in the office. You do take these cases home with them, with you. Um, especially I find cases like this because you develop such a close relationship with your claimants. How else do you... I'm not sure how else to to do a good job for them if I don't really connect with them and create a, that situation of trust. I, I think there are things that you can do to make things a little bit better. I, you know, having a support network, and I don't mean necessarily just like parents and friends, but like having colleagues or other people, other lawyers that you can phone up and say, oh my God, you cannot believe what just happened. You know, that to be able to vent to someone about the events that happened and what you heard without obviously revealing like biographical information or identifying information. But I think that is incredibly important to be able to explain and to to vent about it. It helps you process how you're feeling about something. And without that, it just sits with you in your heart, in your brain, you cannot walk away from it, but just verbalizing it can help with that. I mean, I can also trot out the lines that the Law Society does about, you know, work-life balance and having other, you know, I quilt, I like reading, <laughs> I have cats, <laughs> the crazy cat lady coming out. But I'm not sure that any one of these things is, it, is the best way to manage as a whole. It's just these are pieces of how you can deal with it. But in the end, you take it home with you. You do. It's not, I, I, I don't know that it's possible to not do that, Chantel. If you Have didn't, you figured that out? If you didn't care, you wouldn't be good. Um, I, I do think there's a line that you have to draw at some point where, you know, you have to know yourself well enough to know when, when you're mentally coping. Um, and to be able to draw boundaries. I mean, I, one, one of the things that I really watch out for is that, um, you know, some clients have that drowning man syndrome where they're flailing and desperate and they're drowning and they want to grab on to you for safety, but they pull you under the water. And I, I do think you have to at least set some kind of limits for your own mental health as well. 
but it's really hard because we're we're especially when you're empathetic like if you have that streak in you how to draw the line between caring a lot and then when it starts to take over your own personality or your own well-being it's a really hard line to draw I can already hear a lot of our listeners sighing to say, oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, that, that helps, right? I mean, it, when you talked about blowing off steam and like having colleagues and friends to talk to, um, it, it, it's not only just for the emotional sharing, but it's also for information sharing because a lot of times somebody might have a good idea. I mean, how many times have the three of us sat down for drinks together and said, you know what, I'm working on this thing and blah, blah. And, you know, one of us will say, well, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? And, you know, it's not that you haven't done a good job. You've done a very thorough job. But sometimes someone coming in from a different angle will just have a different idea or has seen that thing before and you haven't. That's not where I thought you were going to go when you mentioned the three of us drinking and our good ideas. But I'm glad that's where you went. Just on behalf of the listeners. There comes a certain point in the evening where the ideas get less good. Like being pushed <laughs> in a stroller so you don't get a DUI, right? Yeah. <laughs> a little stroller pushing. I'm not. No, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I I agree with you absolutely. Because I think one of the problems that we have in our area of law is that there's a lot of people working independently. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, some you know, the cases can be so sort of individualistic, right? That you can't just pattern what you did in the last one will therefore work in this one. And so sometimes you you just don't see a way around some of the issues. So it is a really great idea to talk it through with other people. Cause it, I mean, you can only learn so much from reading the cases, from knowing the legislation. Sometimes it's just experience that's going to carry the day that someone has like a, a little tip or they've experienced something before that will be helpful in yours Mm -hmm. you were saying earlier that you went to the Ontario Court of Appeal on a matter I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about that so two cases actually um last year I think it was last year now time has no meaning it's an artificial construct (laughs) I I refer to everything as the before times and then now so (laughs) it happened in the now period so I think last year but Um, So this is connected to the cases that I've been doing with the overlap with family and child protection. So one of the cases was about this very idea of a family that had fled domestic violence. And then the father had filed an application to have the kids returned to them, to, to the father as a left behind parent. And he was using, I mean, this can happen under the hate convention for abducted children, but Mm it, you know, it's, there's also a provision in our Ontario law that allows for these applications. And I became involved because I was working with the family who was making the refugee claim. And obviously it raised a big you know, immigration issue because the refugee claim hadn't been finalized. And in fact, the board had been going backwards and forwards on whether to let the family proceedings finish. But the core question in the family proceedings was whether the kids should be returned to their home country. And to the well, to the pet, to the father who is to the, the al- agent, the of alleged abuser, right. exactly. And so it was all about like which comes first. Like, can you have the family law application proceed and potentially cut off and prevent the kids from finishing their refugee claim, 
or does the refugee claim come first? And it's quite a complicated issue because there, it is federal, this provincial. The Hague Convention becomes involved, and that's all about expeditious determinations, right? You don't want to have parents separated from their kids for a long time. You've got international, national, and provincial. Exactly. exactly. That sounds fun. <laughs> it was super fun, actually. <laughs> and what it was, happened? It was terrifying appearing in front of the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, no, it was, we were successful, and basically the general takeaway is that when you have these two streams, the family law can make a decision on whether there is risk of harm to the kids if they are returned, but they cannot make a removal order until the refugee claim has been defined, has been decided. Hmm. So they talk about basically splitting or bifurcating the family law proceedings because what was happening before and what has happened in cases is that they make a decision on whether there's risk and if there isn't order the kids returned without having their refugee claim decided and that and so kids have been removed so which is just I mean it's appalling it's it is and it's also it's really shocking because you just think of course refugee claim it's you know you know, section seven rights, <laughs> right to a hearing and to have a risk assessment. And then the, it was being overridden. Well, so it is, it, I guess there would be a difference, right? Between like the standard, like at, at, at the refugee board, it's whether there's a serious chance of persecution. What's the standard that the family court applies? Uh, well, it's balance of probabilities. But when you think about, um, I mean, they're looking at whether there's a serious risk of harm. So there is similarity in how they define those two issues. But I think what makes it more complicated is that within the refugee, that it's not it's not just, uh, you know, a simple issue of if there is if there is risk. Right. There's the additional elements of is there state protection? Mm-hmm. Is there internal flight alternative? And so these two risk determinations don't map like the actual risk determinations have a lot of overlap. But the whole question that the courts are considering and the board is, the tribunal is considering, they don't map on each other so neatly Hmm. because there are those additional elements. And so there has been cases in the past where, um, as a a very famous Ontario Court of Appeal case as well, which talks about when there is a positive refugee determination, what impact does that have when, you know, uh, the left behind parent brings this type of an application to have the kid to re- you know return to them and the the Ontario Court of Appeal there said well a, you know risk determination from the refugee board has to be given weight and this is the only way to deal with the fact that it is federal that it has you know charter protected rights attached to the determination and they said there's a, pre- a rebuttable presumption that the child is at risk, that the Ontario courts have to take account of. Mm. But there's no clearer flip side when it gets transferred into the refugee determination um, that at most what our courts have said in cases from about 10, 15 years ago, the federal court has made comments about how, you know, it's not determinative of the question of refugee protection, but it has to be given consideration and weight but the board still has to make its own determination i know (laughs) it it makes me a little cross-eyed trying to figure out how those work um together and i think this is also going back to that earlier issue of when do you identify this as being a complicated case that you need a senior practitioner 
I think this is the point where you yeah. should be raising a red flag and thinking, I need to find someone who has a bit more experience in this <laughs> it, because it's not a straightforward issue. And even things like evidence between the two proceedings can create huge problems. Mm -hmm. When I, as a non-practicing lawyer in this area. Yeah, you've said that 10 times. I okay, <laughs> this Cat, I get it. A big learning experience for me here. I'm so fascinated. But the rules of evidence... What kind of rules, like, when I look at the IED rules of evidence, they're very flexible. Are they the same at the RPD and the RAD? Like, what, what are people looking at there? So when we talk at the RPD, and, I mean, yeah, there are, so generally you would say there are no rules of evidence, but I always feel that this is kind of, it's an oversimplification of the situation in front of the refugee board because even if all evidence is admissible, you know, other courts do the other thing. Like in family law, for example, it's all about admissibility of evidence. And then, you know, once you get through that, you know, that gatekeeping, it's considered by the court. But in refugee, pretty much everything goes in. But you still, even if there are no rules of evidence, you still have to show that the evidence is credible that it is material, probative. that it is relevant, yeah. probative. There has to be, so you're talking about weight that is given to the documents before the Refugee Protection Division. And you, there's a similar approach at the Appeal Division, but the Appeal Division has additional rules about you know whether a piece of evidence is admissible connected to the timing of when the evidence was available. And my my experience is they basically let in almost everything and then they assign weight to it. So they, like they almost never exclude evidence. I can hardly think of an example. Like maybe if there was like a young offender conviction or something like that, they might exclude that. But I mean, yeah, it's like almost everything goes in and then they just work it all out in the wash. Yeah. It's all about the weight at the end. Yeah. The rules of evidence are basically whatever they want them to be at that particular moment. <laughs> That's actually how it works. And I mean, one of the things about the rules of evidence is that we sometimes see decisions where they say, well, it's not an affidavit. It's not accompanied by this. And part of that is a pushback, because why would you? If there's no rules of evidence, why are you expecting an affidavit? Right. Is there a reason for it? So I think it's about, yeah, it's about flexibility. Though one of the things that these family law cases does raise is that there, you might get evidence being filed from the agent of persecution because they find out about the refugee claim from the family law proceedings, and then they file evidence at the refugee. Trying to screw over the claimant. Exactly. Unbelievable. And, and there is a policy at the board about unsolicited evidence, but again, it's a policy. It's fairly loose, but it can be incredibly detrimental because what are you going to do? Call the agent of persecution as a witness? <laughs> I know. So what do you do in those situations? Well... Dance, dance. <laughs> well, I, you object heavily, rely on the policy for unsolicited evidence, talk about how it can, you know, it's against, I, I argued in a case like this that it was against the policy of the board. You cannot give a voice to the agent of persecution and a voice that cannot be contested or tested in any way, right? right? Like you can't bring them as a witness. So how can you challenge the evidence? It, it's just not what I would say the board is there for. Um, at the same time, 
um, I, I think it's also a really dangerous precedent. Like, what happens next? You let in the evidence from the agent of prosecution in this case who's a, an abuser. So what happens if, say, China wants to send its you know, embassy officers to talk about the treatment of Falun Gong practitioners to mm-hmm. put in their own evidence? Where's the line? Right? You let it in on one. Why not other places? Though I will say there is no case law about this. As I found, I had a case recently that I was working on this issue. There is no case law right now. Why do I feel like there's about to be? <laughs> I want there to be, but <laughs> maybe. Well, I almost feel like you, you could, I mean, if you were successful in, in, in getting it excluded, I almost wonder if there's an argument there that, like, look how aggressively um, persistent this persecutor is, that they're, like, pursuing them even into Canada and trying to interfere in federal proceedings in Canada because that's how much they want to punish this person. Imagine how much more it would be if they had to go back to their country. Yeah, exactly. That's really creepy. I but I think this is going to we're going to see a like a rise in this because we don't have the same limits. You don't have to be in the same country to file these applications. Right? So you hire a lawyer, they file it in the court, you can get your kids back. I think, you know, people who have resources and access to counsel, we're going to see these cases more often than not in in a lot of these, uh, you know, the domestic violence-based cases. I, I think the refugee board needs to consider what they're doing with these cases and how they're going to approach it. And if there are family law proceedings, I mean, my thoughts on it is that they should be prioritizing and setting them down for early decisions, mm-hmm. getting ahead of what's going on in the family courts before you have any potential for the agent of prosecution to start involving themselves in the refugee. Mm-hmm. And because there is obviously quasi-judicial independence of the decision makers, the board isn't, you know, they are hampered a little bit in terms of how they're going to, what, I mean, it's going to be up to every individual decision maker whether they let the evidence in or not. But maybe they want a guideline on this as opposed to just like a policy statement. So, Are you seeing an increase in gender-based violence claims? I wouldn't say I'm seeing an increase, though I will say my perspective is a little skewed because of the types of cases that we take at the Refugee Law Office and because it does form a large part of my practice. Um, but... I mean, with COVID, there have been reports around the world, right, of increased domestic violence and int- you know, intimate partner violence. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw this increase. And I think especially as individuals make refugee claims once they realize this is actually a basis for a refugee claim, because that's something I hear again and again from my claimants. They had no idea that they could get refugee protection. It was a private matter for them in their you know, country of origins, so they thought it was the same thing here. So what's the tipping point then? Like, as a practitioner, you know, when I hear, you know, domestic violence, I also think it's a, a private matter. What would give me that red flag again to say, oh, this could be a potential refugee claim. I should send this off to a specialist. If... 
they've experienced it. Any in their, kind of violence, domestic violence, period. I would say that, I mean, it depends. I mean, obviously, it's not my choice to no. make that de- you know decision. But if you, know, you advise, you give information to your client, to your claimant and potential claimant and explain to them that they may have a refugee claim. I mean, it's, I think it's the same kind of assessment you would engage in any kind of consultation around a you know potential refugee claim you would assess is it a viable refugee claim because maybe they're from a country that has very proactive and strong protection for women facing domestic violence in which case you might tell them yes this could be a basis for a refugee claim but because you are from this country state protection is going to be an issue in your yeah. claim. So I, I think it would be the same thing. And to be honest, most of the claims that come to me are not. I, I end up with claims midway where they've already made the claim. You know, some of my claimants, they have been told about making a refugee claim when the police get involved here in Canada. Hmm. Um, and they're the police are the first ones who will say, first ones to tell them, are you going to make a refugee claim? You can make a refugee claim, which I, I mean... I'm both encouraged that the police are aware of this enough, but also it's alarming to know that you actually have to make a claim to the, you have to actually get the police involved to have this information being provided. So looking at the state protection, IFA, where the person's from, sort of that list, that checklist, that CR checklist. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the same as any refugee claim that you would engage with. Well, I I also think it's a cautionary tale for those people listening who don't have a lot of experience in refugee matters. Um, I I had a case not that long ago where it's, it's a very strong domestic violence refugee claim, and the practitioner who had the file before me filed a humanitarian and compassionate case instead of a refugee claim. And I'm like, this is a this is like a four corners, like clear refugee claim from a country with conditions that clearly support it. Why would you do a humanitarian and compassionate application instead? That that didn't make any sense to me at all because, of course, you can't argue refugee type risk in a humanitarian application. Right. So I mean, there there clearly are people out there that don't understand the difference, and I guess. For me, like the takeaway for a lot of people would be that if you see anything involving any kind of risk, including a gender violence risk, at least get somebody to look at it. You know what? Because maybe at the end of the day, maybe your gut instinct was right. Maybe a humanitarian is a better application. But until you understand from someone who is specialized in this type of work, how do you make that call? Because you don't know what you don't know. Right. Do you know if the person who did the agency did they did they even know that you could make a refugee claim or they just assessed it was it it, it wasn't clear if if they knew that or not um, I mean and they they weren't inclined to discuss it so mm-hmm. I couldn't really get much more information than that I, I think by the time I became involved they sort of knew that they had done something wrong so they weren't uh, they weren't about <laughs> to be very helpful in terms of furnishing information. Because one of the things I've actually heard from a number of people, so I, I will have phone calls with practitioners, you know, just to talk them through some of these cases or when there's interventions by the minister. Um, and one, I, one of the things I've heard from a council was that, oh, they thought an agency would be better rather than refugee because domestic violence is 
he said, she said. Oh, my God. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know, this moment of like, what do you mean? Like, we're in, and I've heard this. So, I mean, this is something that you do see in the newspapers when it comes to criminal cases and there's no evidence. But so much of refugee is. He said, she said. Yeah. Presumption of truth. It's, evidence under oath. Exactly. Oh my God. If anyone is going to have a shot at having that domestic violence really considered, it's at the refugee board. Right. And so I, I, I just found that mind boggling. But I have seen that kind of theme being repeated by other counsel in terms of like, why would you put an affidavit in or a letter from a family member? It's just, you know, self-serving evidence. And, I, you know, it's the same kind of idea that like, oh, well, how is that how does that have any weight or any kind of merit and you're like this is exactly the area of law that we're in Mm -hmm. you know those are those are exactly the pieces of evidence that you would have in a refugee claim a refugee claim is almost entirely self-serving evidence exactly why would you put in a piece of evidence if it wasn't (laughs) self-serving like i just i don't know Um, and here's something which directly contradicts my point (laughs) (laughs) It, it was a very i yeah these moments where I'm like, the only benefit of working from home at the moment is that no one is going to see the faces I make over the phone. <laughs> but no one can hear my screams. <laughs> no, I'm very bad with poker face. <laughs> really don't have one at all. Um, yeah. So, and I just, I mean, one of the things I was going to say actually about like when you were asking about the increase in domestic violence claims, I'm not sure we see an increase, but I think one of the things that's really helpful is that the Refugee Board has carved out a whole you know gender-based task force that is Mm. focused on these types of claims which is really I've had such I've had some incredible experiences with those board members who really understand the right way to engage in trauma-informed questioning as opposed to early in my career sitting through a hearing where a board member asked some very very personal very you know Mm minutia like how many times did this happen for how long each time you know very very upsetting questions for me not just the claimant so I know um perverted yeah it was and but more than once because I've always focused on these types of cases um so that's a really good thing is that like especially if you get one of these cases the first thing you want to do is focus and see you know really put in something to the board and see if you can get in front of one of these task force members who have specialized training, who have a greater understanding of what domestic violence looks like, what that cycle of domestic violence, you know, returning to someone, never leaving, having an understanding rather than getting decisions that say things like, you know, you went back, mm-hmm. you went back, you, you went back, went back. Went back. exactly. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, the board is also revising their um, guidelines that are specific to um, gender-based claims, which is also amazing because those are from 1994. So maybe a smidge dated. It's the last time Um, I was cool. (laughs) I'm laughing in a sympathetic way. (laughs) We all are. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing in front of you. so uh, yeah, I think it was '94 is when they came out, and then I think there might have been a revision afterwards. But still, it's been a while. So, and they are doing a b- 
big overhaul, a real change, really trying to reflect the current approach to domestic violence, incorporating trauma-informed questioning and really thinking it through, which is incredible. It's, you know... Long overdue. Long overdue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's really encouraging. But it's moving the dial forward. Yeah. yeah. Right? I think it's important for listeners to sort of take away the fact that when there is that domestic violence red flag just red flag right there get you know the rules of professional conduct for uh consultants and lawyers allow us to retain outside counsel to get an opinion to say what are your thoughts on this um you know make a friend phone a friend and to say take a look at this what are your thoughts is it possible to have that claim because you'd rather be sure right i'd rather send it out for an opinion and get back a, I, you know, I don't think that it's possible or yes, I think there, that it is possible. I'd rather know that before proceeding with any immigra- other immigration application. So I think that's important to make that awareness. Because, I mean, if we're just changing rules from 1994 now, that to me, that's huge, especially in this particular area, right? I, I think also that... Um we have to have our radar up even before that comes up. Like we need to be on guard and, you know, like not looking for domestic violence under every rock, but to look at the dynamic of what's happening in front of you, because sometimes you could have an abuse situation sitting right across the desk from you and you don't even know it. And if you're not alert and watching for the signs, I mean, if you have like, for example, a husband and wife that are coming in together for every appointment and he's the only one that's talking and she's never seeing anything. And if you're not alert to the signs, you might miss it. I mean, this happened to me before years ago. I had to claim my husband and wife. They came in. They had like a religious violence claim, went through the whole thing. They failed or whatever. I found out only about a year later that he'd been abusing her the whole time. And we ended up having to go back and try to reopen the claim for her and the kids because of domestic violence. And like I... I was their lawyer for two years probably and I never saw it and and I don't know maybe the signs weren't obvious but maybe they were and I missed them but that's the point of domestic violence is it's very hidden it's very behind closed doors and often the victim is taught you know they're innately or they're taught how to put on the happy face put on the show try and you know make the public see what you're supposed to because there's there's a penalty if you don't, Hmm. right? If someone does sniff it out, there is that penalty of how did they know what's going on? And there's a lot of control. So, you know, that misstep becomes problematic. And I do, I think that um, lawyers and consultants need to educate themselves more and more on on domestic violence. Mm -hmm. I think it is, I agree. It is hard to, if it's not brought forward and no one says anything, you can't really can't really look at people and say I think this is happening unless there is something that red flags it to you like someone says they ended up going to the police for something or there was a call you might have to investigate further or I've had this not in the context of refugee but in spousal sponsorships where that dreaded RCMP check comes back with red flags as in assault charges or a conviction or something on the record so you it is hard to to know, but one of the things that I always try to do, sometimes more successfully than others, is I do try to carve out a time 
where I am meeting with the dependent, the non-principal mm-hmm. claimant. Alone. Alone. And that having and making it very clear that I, I, this is part of what has to happen before I'll proceed. And I think that this is a good practice for any dependents, inclu- including children. I have had children or dependents talk about their sexual orientation, things that they're not willing to talk about in front of their parents or a partner. Um, definitely, there's been uh, not just domestic violence, but other incidents like a rape or some, you know, another assault in the past that is relevant to a claim, but they were they were never willing to tell a partner about. You know, people hide topics like this all the time, and you have to make space for the claimants to tell you and to trust that you won't break that trust and that is hard when you have a retainer that is owes a duty of candor and honesty to both parties and so you have to be willing that if the that individual doesn't want to disclose it to the other people in the claim that you may have to you may have to withdraw as counsel and refer them out to separate counsel that you may have to work at severing the claim if it's already been made at splitting up or you might need a different designated representative other than the parent yes and but i mean you're not doing your duty if you don't highlight or don't deal with all these things mm-hmm. so i i you know i do think it can become it can become very complicated, um, but it still isn't something that you should shy away from because this may be the only time that you get this information from the non-principal claimants, especially if the claimant, the principal claimant is the agent of persecution for them, the abuser. And, and you might be the only person that they've ever opened up to about this, right? So exactly. this could be the one and only chance ever to resolve that issue. Exactly, exactly. So as as a practitioner, it, it sounds to me like I need training about trauma-informed questions. Where would I get that kind of training? Or how do I educate myself on this? Like what kinds of things, if I'm a new practitioner looking to get into this field, what kinds of things would I should I do? Because obviously I don't want to ask questions that you know are going to be incredibly offensive or cause that person more emotional harm so what kinds of things should I be doing to help make sure I don't have that misstep I think the very asking and thinking about this is always a good start I think this concept of trauma-informed questioning and lawyering has not really despite the area of law that we're in it's only something that has really become a topic of conversation the past few years, I would say, that really pushing it forward. Um, I would look to the board for the resources when those gender guidelines come out, the revised versions, there's going to be an extensive section about trauma-informed questioning. Um, There is also, I mean, I know that the new consultant program has a section about this that provides resources. The Law Society has had a couple of sessions, um, you know, continuing education programs about this. There are resources to be found if you look for them. Um, Yeah, so I think you would be able to find resources 
about this. But I mean, in the end, I think it's just about being a bit, being sensitive to your claimants, though. One of the things when I teach at Queens, um, I do the introductory course, and one of the things that we talk about is, you know, refugee claims at a very, very high level. And I always, one of the things I always tell people is, hey, if you are a consultant or a lawyer looking to get into this area, always, always work under a specialist in the area. Do that first and foremost, because they will teach you how to manage these types of claims um, and make sure, because it's, it's, to me, it's a whole other area of law. It's very specialized and it's life and death. So I always, you know, kind of my preaching is if you're going to do this, make, you can't get it wrong. You cannot get it wrong. It's one refugee claim per lifetime. You're done. And sometimes you don't have the right of appeal to the red. So I always say practice. After you get your license, go in and work with a specialist in the area or put them on retainer on a regular basis. And they will coach you and teach you and educate you. But don't go out there and think that you can just do it on your own because you can't. No, you you just can't, can't wing this. Can't wing it. No. Absolutely not. When I first started, I observed a number of hearings because, honestly, that was the best way for me to know what actually goes on. You get taught in theory, and I'd seen one before, but it's only when you actually sit through hearings and are trying to figure out litigation strategy and the questions to ask and what evidence to bring. It's only when you actually go through it for the first time that you really that you really learn anything is quite, it is very far from what I learned in law school. Mm -hmm. So it, the experience is what you need. And starting by observing hearings, by talking to senior practitioners, as you said, um, and asking if you can work through a hearing with them, I think that's invaluable, like seeing the different steps and how they worked on certain issues that you might not be able to sit in with claimants, but you can at least get a sense of what kinds of things would you say in closing submissions? How would you put together a package of documents? What kind of documents are you looking for? I think you can't learn that from textbooks, to be honest. It doesn't I mean agree. anything until you go through it. What other helpful hints do you have for our listeners? Whatever. What other things? If you could be like, <laughs> here's a takeaway for you, what would it be? Um, so there are a couple of things, I guess. Um, well, there's so many, so many things. But I, I think one of the things I often tell people is um, be prepared for the unexpected when you get to um, be prepared for the unexpected in the refugee claim. Um, and the way that I like to do that is I don't necessarily have from my like my written submissions, I'll have sort of a, you know, a, a breakdown of the things I want to refer to and I'll prepare in advance. But I also, and this is something I started as a junior lawyer, I have a cheat sheet that I bring in with me to my refugee claims. And it's literally a, just a list of all the case law divided up in different areas, the leading cases. And so that if something comes up, like there's no mission in the box, and I was not expecting that because they had never talked about it before, voila, I have the case law. I can just pull it out and start talking about it. And I'm not going to sound like an idiot because I will have, even if I don't have the latest and greatest in the case law, I have 
a leading case. I have something I can refer to, which, you know, is the precedent case on the matter. And it gives a level of comfort as well, so that when you have those five, 10 minutes at the end of the hearing to prepare your oral submissions, you're not scrambling looking for case law. You have it already. And because I don't remember all the cases, I don't remember the names, that's why I have, I have them written in my cheat sheet. The other thing I would recommend is when you're working with your claimant on their basis of claim, that basis of claim is always going to be in English and French. There is never a guarantee that your claimant will speak and read English and French. So if you have an interpreter, you either have to have that basis of claim translated, or if you're working on legal aid who does, and they don't cover the cost of that, get your claimant to record the interpreter with their permission, of course, while they are reading the translated, the interpreted basis of claim narrative. They can always listen back to that recording and always hear what was said because, you know, two years later when you're being asked questions on that basis of claim, how are you going to remember exactly what was said, the, the wording or what incidents were in or not? It's just, it's helpful for them to always be able to listen to it again and refer back to it. And it's something that I've started doing recently and I can see how it really reduces the stress level for my claimants. Well, it would also help, I mean, in, if there was a mistake. Yes, absolutely. That's a great idea. I've never thought of that before. Came out of desperation because <laughs> I had like a claim I inherited of 10 pages of a narrative, um, which had been interpreted to them three years ago and which the claimant still doesn't, you know, they don't speak and read English. So, and Legal Aid said no to translating the narrative, so. Well, that seems fair. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to manage this otherwise, and I do not, I don't speak Spanish fluently, so, <laughs> or at all, really. I can order beer, that's about the limit. <laughs> Well, Cheryl, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I feel like we could do this like for at least another hour. This has been fascinating. Um, I know this is an area of law that a lot of practitioners find very opaque mm-hmm. and really scary. Um, and, and, and they're right to be scared. It's, it's healthy to be a little bit scared of this area of law because it, it stops you from, from taking unnecessary risks. But at the same time, you've really helped to demystify a lot of the points. So. Um, we really appreciate your time. We know how busy you are. Um, and uh, we think that this is going to be a fantastic episode for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Canadian Refugee Protection Law Guide provides a concise yet comprehensive summary of the procedural and strategic elements involved in achieving protected person status for one's client. This handbook, written by one of Canada's foremost experts on the topic, David Matus and Gentiana Morina guides you through the very practical detail on the various programs available, how clients physically reach Canada and begin refugee protection proceedings, and it will tell you how to prepare a claim. To get your copy today, visit emond.ca forward slash CRPG and enter promo code CRPG10 for 10% off. And now we'd like to tell you some tales from the trenches. Otherwise known as things we wish we didn't do. Mwah, mwah, mwah.
probably the most nerve-wracking experience I ever had with a client as a lawyer uh, happened quite a number of years ago when I was representing a corporate client. This corporate client was quite demanding uh, and rather unreasonable in terms of her expectations of when things would be done, how quickly, who was doing what. She was also a bit of a micromanager in the sense that there were a lot of things that I would normally control about the process that she wanted to control herself by having her staff members do certain aspects of the procedure. So it's never a good idea to have too many cooks in the kitchen. And I guess I probably should have been a little bit more uh, standing up for myself in front of her, but I allowed that behavior to continue and I didn't have very good boundaries with her. In any event, what happened was there was a deadline coming up where we had to submit a document to immigration. And the client insisted that she wanted her staff to submit this document. Meantime, my assistant had also gone on vacation. So there was a bit of a perfect storm happening in terms of who's doing what and the person who would normally remind me of all of my deadlines not being there at that particular moment. Well, inevitably what happened was her assistant did not submit the document. I didn't realize the document wasn't submitted either. And the deadline passed and immigration refused the application. The client absolutely exploded. Now, I knew that I could fix this situation because it was an innocent mistake. I had a feeling that if I spoke to the officer that probably they would agree to reopen the case, most likely. But the problem is, in the meantime, the client in a fit of temper threatened to sue me. So as soon as she threatened to sue me, now, of course, I had to inform my professional insurance. My professional insurance became involved and basically every single step that happened, I had to clear it through the insurance company's lawyers before I did it. So that meant that what should have taken maybe 10 minutes to pick up the phone and, you know, speak to the officer or send them an email and try to work it out, ended up taking about six weeks to fix because every single email, every call, everything between me and the client or me and immigration had to now go through the professional insurance. And at the end of the day, the problem did get fixed and nothing did go wrong. I never did get sued. The case was reopened. Everything was successful, but it really taught me an important lesson lesson about having proper boundaries with my client that no, you know, these are the steps that I'm going to do. I don't want you interfering. I can't have your staff, you know, sticking their fingers in. And also the fact that she was rushing me so much to do all of the steps that it made it easy for a mistake to happen. So if I had to do that over again, well, first of all, I would have declined, declined that retainer. <laughs> the first temper outburst, I probably would have dropped it. But um, it, the main thing is I, I would have drawn the line much earlier and had a much more uh, clear division of labor. A wonderful lawyer named Chantal Delage went Never heard of her. on vacation. No, this is a hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and she asked me, a junior lawyer at the law firm, to take the personal information form for a convention refugee client. It is now called the Bach. And um, when you're taking the PIF or the personal information form, you meet with the refugee claimant and you go through the basis of their refugee claim and you get all the details down. So I met with the client and, of course, we're going through all the horrible 
details and I couldn't help it, burst into tears. We are talking, I was sobbing. And it was so bad, my sobbing, that I could barely take down any information and the client asked for a break. He went downstairs to the lobby, bought me a hot chocolate and a box of Kleenex (laughs) and came back and we resumed uh, taking the piff down. And it took me probably about four times as long as it should have because I was just so horribly upset. And what that whole incident taught me, of course, you know, it's a bad sign when that same client is still checking in with you three years later. (laughs) And their refugee claim was successful, thankfully. But um, it's important to have healthy divide between practitioner and client. Making sure that you're not so emotionally involved in the outcome of your client's case is very important. And of course, that was the moment I learned to never, ever touch another refugee file again. Couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. I'm a baby. And if that's the same guy I'm thinking of, that was about 15 years ago. And up until now, that guy still calls me once in a while and remembers you and uh, is very grateful for the work that we both did. I, I just, it, people were so mean to him. I was so upset. It was awful. Tales from the Trenches things I wish I didn't do. Are you an immigration practitioner working on cases involving temporary residency and work permit applications? Hmm? Stay prepared with Iman Publishing's Temporary Entry into the Canadian Labour Market by Stephen Green, Alexandra Cole, Christina Guida, and Peter Salerno. This handbook will guide you through the avenues and implication of a foreign worker's temporary entry into Canada from applications for work authorizations all the way through to employer compliance and inspections. Get your copy today. Visit emun.ca forward slash T-E-C-L-M and enter promo code T-E-C-L-M 10 for 10% off. Do it now. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emon.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925, extension 227. My name is Danan Hawes and I'm the senior publisher at Emon Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content including our Immigration Law series edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams, and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. Emond is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.